Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. This may be a weekly podcast, but in Israel for the past week, every single day has felt like an eternity. As we record, Israel is still reeling from the brutal and horrific assault on its southern side on October 7th, in which 1,300 Israelis were killed, thousands more were injured, and as the count stands now, 199 are believed to be held hostage in Gaza by Hamas. Israel has been bombarded by rockets, sirens sound across the country every day, all day. The first session of the Knesset was interrupted by sirens and members of the parliament had to run to safe rooms. A heavy ongoing air assault by Israelis in Gaza is ongoing and a ground assault is just a matter of time. In the meantime, the northern border also seems to be heating up. With all this is the intensive intervention of the United States in the ongoing conflict, capped off by the decision of U.S. President Joe Biden to travel to this active war zone in order to, in his words, stand in solidarity with Israel. On the podcast this week, I'll be talking to Buria Karni Hadas, a resident of one of Israel's communities on the Gaza border. She'll share her experience living through the horror of Saturday's violence and how she and her neighbors are trying to rebuild their homes and their lives. Afterwards, I'll discuss the close involvement of the United States in Israel's ongoing conflict with Haaretz senior columnist Alon Pinkas, the former Israeli consul general in New York. Boya Kani Hadas is a resident of Kibbutz Kerem Shalom. That translates into Vineyard of Peace. It's located on the Israel-Gaza-Egyptian border. The name of the kibbutz includes the word Shalom, peace, since the members who founded it believe that its location would play a role in establishing peace and ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. Boya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Can you tell us where you're speaking to us from right now? We are uh, in Eilat. We were evacuated uh, last Sunday night uh, by the army, and uh, we are uh, refugees, but very, very spoiled refugees. You're all staying together in a hotel, all of the members of the kibbutz? Yes, the whole, the whole kibbutz uh, is uh, in the same hotel. We try to organize the kibbutz uh, infrastructure again to, to try to to live as normal as possible life here. So far, it's very hectic. What's hectic? What's going on over there? Well, families and children that took very little in very little short time uh, belongings for the everyday life. So we need to find from diapers for the babies and clothings and everything so we try to organize that as a first then we need therapists people went through a very very hard experience even those who were not in the kibbutz during the events were only reading the messages of what going on had a very hard experience so finding therapists, finding psychiatrists, uh, small medical needs like uh, dentists or uh, a baby with fever, 
every simple thing is complicated now. So I know it's difficult, but um, take us back to the morning that changed everyone's lives. Where were you? How did it all start for you on the morning of Saturday, October 7th? We woke up at 6.20, about 6.20 from the red alert alarm. We ran to the safe room, gathering all the children. I have four children at home. I had four children at home with me. Um, And then we saw that uh, it doesn't stop. It keeps coming and coming. And we have, I have the application and my phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing for more and more alerts. And I remember saying to a friend, writing to a friend, we did everything by WhatsApp, writing to a friend that uh, even Sukeitan wasn't that hard. So you realized pretty early that this was a missile attack, unlike something that you'd experienced before. It was unlike anything we knew before. And it the, it reminded me the morning where when Gilad Shalit was kidnapped. And I said that it feels like something else. Then my friend uh, Shafa from uh, Cholit wrote to me that her son wrote him is very worried about my son. They're very close friends. And he wants to know that we are okay. So you live in a very, very small kibbutz, um, uh, yes. Kerem Shalom. We live in Kerem Shalom. Which is about 200 residents? Yes, 40 families, more or less. And uh, your friend who texted you um, also lived on a very tiny uh, kibbutz, right? Cholit. Yes, they live in Cholit. And... Uh, Usually, Kerem Shalom is known as the worst place to be in uh, when something like this, that happens. And people, there are still people who are afraid to visit us in Kerem Shalom. This time we were very lucky and we had brave men who protected our lives, but uh, we all lost our friends around us. So. We are lucky, but but devastated. We're alive, but devastated. So talk me a little bit through the day. You lay there for how long? At what time did you find out that this was more than a missile attack, that all of the kibbutzim in the area had been infiltrated? How did you find out, and, and what was it like going through the day? Uh, I think that around 7 o'clock we realized that there is more than than just a missile attack. Uh, we started to hear uh, gunfighting outside, uh, people yelling in Arabic. Um, and then I got the message from Shaha that said that the family over there wrote that there are uh, terrorists trying to open uh, the door at their house. And I said that I hear, I hear guns, but it sounds impossible, but very scary. And then she told me they had, they, she heard knocking on the door and she heard shootings. And, uh, and that someone broke the, the glass in the, on the door. And I asked her if she updated someone, are they locked in the safe room? 
and she, that she wrote to the responsible of the emergency at the kibbutz. I told her that writing is not the good solution. Now she has to call someone and that is very frightening. And she wrote me, yes, very frightening. And I wrote that there's even no use to say, stay safe. We're, we don't know how to stay safe in this situation. But she didn't read this message at all. And then I asked her what's going on and she didn't answer. And then I wrote that I'm very worried and she didn't answer. And then I tried to contact Shlomi, her husband, her husband asking what's going on with them. And he didn't answer. And finally, Roded, my son, I asked him to message uh, Rotem, their son, and ask, tell them that I'm worried about the parents and I want to know what's going on there. And Rotem wrote, parents are dead, I need help. And your friends were, you know her as Shachar, but her other name was uh, Debbie? Yes. Troen Matias, and her husband was uh, Shlomi Matias. They've gotten a lot of coverage in the U.S. media because she was an immigrant. Her family emigrated from the United States, and her father was a professor at at Brandeis University. Um, You attended their funeral yesterday in uh, in southern Israel, in uh, in Omer, and heard the story of how they died. Can you share it? Uh, From what I understand... The terrorists threw, threw a grenade uh, into the on the door of the safe room, first of all, and Shlomi lost his arm. And uh, Shachar, brave Shachar, covered Rotem and laid on him, hoping no one will find him. And they threw another grenade into the room and then shot several rounds of bullets into the room. Uh, and Shachar and Shlomi died. Rotem was shot in his uh, belly and uh, got some uh, rejects from the grenades in his leg and uh, around his eyebrow. He lay there, lay there uh, for about 30 minutes before he dared moving and checking what's going on there. And he, my son was in contact with him during nine hours to make sure he's still alive. He stayed there, nobody could arrive and help him. Uh, on the other side, I tried to find people from Cholit to get some help for Rotem. But uh, it was a total chaos there. And uh, eventually, after nine hours, the army arrived to to give him some help to, to evacuate him to the hospital. And then we tried to find uh, Shir and Shaked, his uh, sisters who were in their apartments. They also live in the kibbutz, but had no contact with them. 
and uh, all gathered together and realized that it's a tragedy and a miracle at the same time. So you lost these very close friends of yours. Um, you lost two members of your kibbutz who are the emergency response team. It really seemed like the difference between slaughter and survival for most of these kibbutzim and kibbutz members were how quickly the emergency response team realized that there were infiltrations yes. and how the, quickly and how they were how many weapons they had and then the numbers of Hamas fighters who entered because in some cases it was hundreds and they stood no chance and in some cases it was a smaller number and they were able to uh, to kill them or uh, or uh, repel them uh, you lost two members of your emergency we response lost, team we uh, lost Raziel and uh, Amichai Weizen who bravely protected the family that uh, terrorists bombed their house. And uh, the father of the family, Amichai Schindler, is uh, badly wounded from uh, an explosion. The rest of the family, six children and the mother, are safe, no scratch, which is amazing. We have another friend, Yair Wiesner, who was uh, hit by an RPG missile that was shot towards him at this battle, specific battle. But we only had eight members of uh, the emergency response team, eight members that fought against dozens and dozens of terrorists. And later on, we we were uh, told that there were about 50 more that waited outside to arrive. Um, it's it's a story of a huge bravery of eight men and a huge miracle. And the fact that we are all alive here today is amazing and the thought of the alternative is terrifying it seems too soon to talk about the future and not the time to talk politics when we're in the middle of waging a war and the outcome is so uncertain but i do see in the israeli media a range of attitudes in survivors of uh what happened in in the gaza region some kibbutzes some kibbutzim are talking about returning, rebuilding, even some in the worst hit kibbutz are starting to do so. Um, others are saying until they know Hamas is no longer running Gaza, there, there's no way they will ever go back to their homes. Others are saying that even if this happens, the scars and the memories of, uh, of what happened on October 7th are too much for them. It's too deep to even ever consider coming back. What do you hear and feel around you about what people are going through beyond getting through the day? Um, and, and where do you stand on all this? Well, I'll start with myself. Uh, the future is not clear at all. I don't even know when this future will arrive. But uh, I feel we need a certainty. And for me, the certainty is that we are going home and we will be there at the day after the war. And uh, for now, I know that we will stay there. This is our home. I've been living in Kerem Shalom for the last 19 years. I 
built this kibbutz with my friends, with my bare hands. And I cannot even imagine another option. For me, this is home. And we will go back there. Some people are talking about not even going back to pack their belongings. They don't want to be there anymore. Some are still hesitating, but most of us know that this is home and this is where we're going to live. Uh, as a final question, Boya, I'm sure that you've had so much love and well wishes pouring in from inside Israel, maybe from friends around the world. I don't know if you feel that people are really with you or if they'll ever understand anything close to what you've been through and what you're feeling. Do you have any message um, out there for, uh, for those who are watching and worrying um, about, uh, about people like you who have been through this uh, experience? First of all, I want to thank the, everybody. I, I don't even know where to start, but we are loved and surrounded by good people who want to do and help and give people from all over the world and mainly from Israel and Eilat, the whole city of Eilat uh, is around us and helping us. And I want to thank all of them. I know that no one can understand this situation. Uh, even I that have been through it still cannot uh, understand it. And, uh, but I know that people really want to help and this encourages us. I know that we are strong and that we will be back. And I know that Kerem Shalom will be an amazing kibbutz again. And we were planning to build a new neighborhood for 14 families. And we are waiting to meet those families that we still don't know who will want to come to Kerem Shalom. But we know that Kerem Shalom can be an amazing place. And we wish to grow and we wish to, to rebuild and build more more uh, kibbutzim or other settlements around us because this this part of Israel is amazing and beautiful and peaceful most of the time and we need to enjoy this and cherish it. Boya, thank you so much for coming on. I know it couldn't be easy and um, uh, really grateful that you came to the podcast. Thank you. Coming up, Haaretz columnist Alon Pincus on America's solidarity and close supervision of the unfolding war in Israel. A surprise assault by land, sea, and air. How are you going to get these hostages back? The ruthless attack by Hamas has left us shaken. The walls closing in, the floor opening under my feet, total insecurity. Over the next few weeks, the Shalom Hartman Institute is launching a special series with Yassi Klein-Halevi and Danielle Hartman as they reflect on the current war in Israel. I have no vengeance in my heart and I have no anger. I just know that our life here in Israel is constantly this close. To failure. Listen to Israel at War at shalomhartman.org forward slash for heaven's sake or on the For Heaven's Sake podcast feed. Alon, 
Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Allison. After numerous declarations of support for Israel over the past 10 days, President Joe Biden has made what feels like the ultimate gesture, announcing that he would come to Israel in the middle of a war to show support. Uh, He also gave an extensive interview to 60 Minutes, the headline of which was reported as a warning to Israel not to think about reoccupying Gaza as a goal of the war. What else did you take away from that long interview and in general, the messages he's been sending over the past 10 days? Well, it's a, co- it's a combination of things that seem to be contradictory, but nonetheless, they, uh, uh, they're reconcilable. One is profound, deep sympathy and, and friendship to Israel. Second is a material commitment, both military and uh, diplomatic, to support Israel. And third is a level of very worrying, although not unpredictable, but very worrying um, distrust in Israel's uh, decision-making process in the next few days. And you take the three and you, you, you separate artificially, but you separate the optics of, of a visit exhibiting and demonstrating the utmost uh, uh, friendship, support, sympathy, and commitment but also uh, sort of a, uh, um, I'm going to hug you and I'm going to hug you close so you won't do anything irresponsible. Uh, because, I'll just add one thing, because it's not about worrying uh, uh, or being concerned for a dear friend. It's also because this is tangentially uh, uh, touching American interests. And so you... Uh, um, we're not going to tell you what to do, but we're going to be very close to supervise what it is exactly that you do do. Ed, this Biden visit is coming on the heels of two visits from Secretary of State Antony Blinken since the conflict broke out. In one, it was reported that he was uh, sitting with Benjamin Netanyahu's team for eight nine hours. Kind of ironic how long Netanyahu has been waiting for sit-downs with top American officials, and now he's got an unlimited number of them. Allison, it was not anything remotely similar to a sit-down. This was an unprecedented thing where a United States Secretary of State sits in on on an Israeli cabinet meeting. And, and I don't think that's anything to uh, brag or be proud of if I were Netanyahu. It was obviously a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, comment, but it seems, I mean, almost as if Israel's being babysat, um, you know, showing support and care. And at the same time, we're watching you very closely to make sure you don't misbehave. Yeah, because, you know, let's draw the distinction we made a long time ago, irrespective of, the, of, of this war. And that is that uh, the U.S., and Biden in particular, if supportive of Israel, they're not trustful or uh, confident in Mr. Netanyahu. And so they feel necessary uh, to babysit, as you correctly uh, uh, <laughs> described it. But we have to put it in context for the benefit of our listeners here. For, for the U.S., this is a distraction. This is not something they want to get involved in. This is not something they planned Uh, uh, to be engaged in, and this is not something they want to be dragged into. Uh, It's a distraction from Russia, Ukraine. It's a distraction from the further strengthening of NATO. It is a distraction from the uh, grand strategic uh, um, challenge that is posed by China. Um, This is is not, you know, the U.S. is in the process for for the better part of the last decade of disengaging from the Middle East. 
And the last thing they want is to be distracted by this or be sucked into a Middle East war. However, there is an overriding American uh, interest here, and that is to uh, prevent, I'm quoting Biden, to prevent the spread of the conflict. In other words, to prevent escalation and contain this, which is why the, the USS Gerald Ford uh, carrier strike group was sent to the Eastern Mediterranean, which is why the USS Dwight Eisenhower is sailing on its way here, and we'll get here uh, next Monday, presumably, which is why 2000, uh, a 2,000-strong Marine force is coming here. Uh, but let's not have any doubt and keep it in context. This is not something the U.S. wanted to be involved in. Yeah, I was going to say that's a hell of a disengagement and, uh, yeah. and being uh, <laughs> pulling itself away from Middle East messes, right? That explains the anxiousness and the very physical hug. That plays into a column that you wrote um, uh, just a few days ago. We lose track of the days every day here is feeling like a week. Um, but you wrote that two flawed assumptions have been gaining traction in Israel in recent days. So some of the things we just spoke about and that you just mentioned, you feel have been misinterpreted maybe by Israeli leaders and or yeah. the Israeli public. Can you explain that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think the uh, it's been corrected since. But but once uh, President Biden made his speech last Tuesday, um, everyone assumed uh, that Israel has a blank check to do whatever it wants. It does not. Uh, if you listen carefully to both his uh, speech last Tuesday and indeed the uh, 60 minutes, the CBS 60 minute interview that you uh, alluded to earlier, um, he's making uh, conditions, as did uh, Secretary of State uh, um, Anthony Blinken, who laid out the four interests that the U.S. has uh, on, uh, yesterday in Cairo when he visited Cairo. He said, we support Israel. That's number one. Two, we want to uh, prevent the spread of the uh, conflict, meaning escalation. Three, we want to free the hostages. Four, we want to mitigate or uh, 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 deal with the uh, with an existing not in, in 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 present tense an existing humanitarian crisis um, in Gaza and I think the uh, uh, the wrong assumption that was made in Israel is that wow Biden loves us Biden is going to send the USS Gerald Ford Biden is going to bomb the hell out of everyone Bi Biden is going to allow us uh, to do whatever we we want well a we can't b uh, um, it seems that the Americans are not even remotely engaged in such military intervention, at least at this point, and they made it clear that they will only do so um, if if it if this is escalated. And and so this you know this assumption that that we were given not just support but a blank check was was uh, um, mistaken and 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 uh, you know flawed from the outset. In the category of how is this conflict different from other conflicts, um, there are reportedly at least 13 American citizens unaccounted for. At least some of them, if not all of them, are being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. How much do you think this will be a factor in influencing U.S. policy in addition to the wider foreign policy interests of, uh, of the America? I think it's a major issue, and 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 look, you can't escape the uh, um, you know in the midst of this uh, horrible, horrific tragedy, um, you can't miss the irony. 
here's Israel, who was, uh, uh, who was un- well, the prime minister at least, who was uh, um, dismissive and derisive and, and critical of the U.S. for uh, uh, freeing $6 billion worth of uh, Iranian mon- money, which, by the way, hasn't been uh, uh, unfrozen yet, um, in exchange for five American hostages held in Iran. Um, and Israel was laughing at that, and Israel was critical of that. Now Israel is saying, well, look at the U.S., look how uh, uh, seriously they take American nationals being held hostages, even to the, to the extent or to the degree of sending an aircraft carrier. Now, uh, well, if you take the, uh, um, the, the, the la- statements made in the last few days, um, you see that the Americans are taking this very seriously. If you look at how much time, attention, and sympathy um, President Biden expended on speaking to families of, of uh, hostages, mostly uh, American nationals, you know that the Americans are taking this seriously. If anyone thought that Israel could mount some kind of a military operation, uh, regardless of the hostages, the U.S. sort of made it clear that that can't happen. Uh, so I think they're taking it seriously. I don't think American foreign policy is, is determined by uh, hostages or the uh, uh, the fate of those hostages. But you know, you never know. Uh, um, um, you know the, the the exact position of that priority in, on the list. It seems terrible to suggest anything beyond U.S. foreign policy interests. The Kishka factor with Biden, who really does seem to genuinely care about Israel, but. How does the fact that we're going into a U.S. presidential election cycle at all factor into what's going on now? I couldn't help noticing that it seemed like up is down and black was white when we had Biden reassuring, talking to, supporting Benjamin Netanyahu at the same time when his old BFF Donald Trump in the midst of a war was criticizing and attacking him. The, the world seemed a little bit backwards politically. Well, I think that was Biden's position from the outset. The fact that there were um, um, hordes of idiots in Israel who worshipped uh, Trump because Mr. Netanyahu, uh, um, uh, you know, maintained a bromance with him um, is not Biden's fault. The fact that Israelis couldn't see straight who Biden is is not Biden's fault. Um, look, I don't know. I mean, I doubt very much that the uh, presidential election has anything to do with it. A it is 13 months away or just slightly over a year. B, electorally, uh, it would make no difference whatsoever. 75%, pr- probably a little more, of American Jews will vote uh, for Joe Biden no matter what. Um, not one American Jewish dollar in, in political contributions uh, uh, will be uh, uh, subtracted or uh, you know deducted uh, because of Biden's policies. It will, however, um, provided that this works out in the end positively, positively it will give him, you know, a, a, a boost in terms of uh, uh, the public uh, uh, image. Um, on the same level, possibly, plausibly, on the same level that the uh, standing up to Putin and, and supporting Ukraine for so long and strengthening NATO in the process, uh, gave him, but to think that uh, of 335 million Americans, there is even one that's going to vote uh, for or against Biden because of his Vidi's policy, I think is wrong. 
pivoting for a moment to Israeli politics away from your diplomatic expertise, I have to ask you, I've done interviews with many foreign media outlets and I'm asked the same question over and over again and I'm not quite sure how to answer it. Is the Israeli population now rallying behind Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu because he is heading the country as they're waging this huge and terrible conflict? And is this possibly the beginning of some sort of redemption or comeback for him? Uh, <laughs> I see you're engaging in science fiction, Alice. <laughs> um, no one is rallying behind him. He has no redemption um, he's displayed extraordinary levels of ineptitude and incompetence and lack of responsibility and, and dismissive of, of any sense of accountability. Um, I, I, I see no rallying behind him. You have some people who make a valid argument that, you know, there's, there's a time and a place for everything and this should all wait for after the, the political, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, axing that need to be grind. We do grinded. have a we do have an emergency unity government. No, we don't. We have we have an ad hoc war cabinet um, that's supposed to dissolve afterwards. I I just don't see Mr. Netanyahu surviving this. By the way, nor should he. Um, and as for public um, rally, I don't see signs of it. I only saw two polls. You know, forget the guy in the supermarket. The uh, proverbial cab driver or the uh, uh, the guy you know from the cafe who you speak with. Uh, the, the, they don't necessarily reflect a general mood. But the only thing that, that I saw were two uh, polls, one by uh, Camille Fuchs, the statistician and pollster, and one, one that was published in the Mariv Daily, uh, both of which showed um, um, record lows in terms of support for Mr. Netanyahu and his government. So I, I fail to see how anyone is rallying behind him. I fail to see how redemption is in the cards. To wrap up, going back to the question of uh, U.S. support, and it's always hard to prognosticate, in this babysitter situation, tight hug that we described, what kind of event, what kind of behavior do you think it would take to see any kind of withdrawal of this unconditional support that Biden and Blinken are showing for Israel right now? Oh, I don't think I don't think there's going to be a withdrawal of support. I think the commitment is real. Um, you know, we can speculate or guesstimate you and I uh, from now to eternity on, on the day after. Do the Americans see a silver lining? Don't forget, it's important uh, that, that Biden is going to also see uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the uh, head of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, he's not doing that because he uh, um, feels necessary. He's, he's doing it because he's thinking or people around him are thinking about the day later. I think that the hug that we uh, the discussed thoroughly earlier, the, the, you know, the, uh, this this overwhelming support and babysitting, as you called it, um, is going to is going to prevent Israel from doing anything that would conceivably cause the U.S. to uh, withdraw support. Uh, I just don't see that happening. Alon, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and uh, discuss My everything pleasure. with us. As we say in these parts of the world these days, stay safe. You too. <laughs> thank you so much, Allison. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. 
Thanks to my guests, Alon Pincus and Broria Carney Hadas, and to my editor and producer, Nahara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan Sommer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.